0: A good question to ask ourselves today: Are you a fan of the rules, or are we just following Jesus? Jesus loves each of us a lot, and I find that that's something that like you kind of learn the first time at some point in your life, but then you relearn over and over and over again. And we sometimes have this tendency to get focused more on the rules, more focused on the things you're supposed to do, and and what you're not supposed to do. And we get focused on that as kind of like the source of, hey, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Then I, that means I must be close to Christ. But really, what it means to be close to Christ is to be reintroduced to his love over and over again, to daily be connected to his presence. Um, today, I have the opportunity to share with you, as John told you, I'm the pastor of students here. And uh, I'm excited to be able to talk to you about this idea of a relationship with Jesus being about more than rules. Now, I want to make sure that I am clear here at the start that the title of the message is more than rules, not just no rules, okay? The rules still exist, okay? There's rules there. Um, And from time to time, we may wish that there was kind of more of a no rules approach, that we could just kind of do whatever we want. As pastor of students, I have students that often when we go on retreats would prefer a no rules approach to the rules approach that that we often take. Same thing for my kids. I have a a daughter that just turned three two days ago, and I have a son that uh, is almost four, and they at times wish that there were no rules, and quite often they actually act like there are no rules. But God's given us great instruction in the Bible, so I just want to be clear about that, that we're not saying that the rules aren't there. Like God's given us a lot of good instruction in the Bible. The problem becomes when we make the rules our focus instead of making our focus be on Jesus Christ. When I was in elementary school, I got to participate in like an after school club once a week where we would go bowling together with our classmates. And it was something that I really enjoyed. I was never great at it, but always just really enjoyed doing it. And I had one friend in particular that was just a terrible, terrible bowler, just awful. I mean, he was like struggling by the end of the game to be in the neighborhood of like 15, 25. I mean, it was just like gutter ball after gutter ball, you know, just really, really bad. And I don't know if you've ever been bowling with somebody who like, when they like release the ball, they just can't seem to get the timing right for when they should let it go. Either they like let it go too early and it just goes thud right down to the ground, or they let it go too late and it gets lofted and lands like 10 feet down. But this guy was doing all those kinds of things. And one day we were bowling, and he goes down to take his shot, and he throws, literally throws the bowling ball up into the air. And so it's just floating through the air, and it lands, and it hits the lane, And it hits the lane so hard that it bounces up and goes into the next lane and rolls down that aisle. And I kid you not, rolled down, got a strike in the other people's lane. So needless to say, the person in the other lane was pretty excited about the strike they just got. But this poor kid that just threw the ball, he got nothing for his efforts, right? Because that wasn't his target. The lane next to him wasn't his target. The target was right in front of him. And he completely missed that target. All right, so here's what happens when it comes to rules. When we focus on rules, that's not the target. And so we may do really well following all of the rules, but that's not the target. Jesus doesn't say, follow all the rules and then you'll know me. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So we connect with Jesus. And when we do that, we get to know him rather than making the focus the rules. So let's adjust our target today. Let's not look at the rules. Let's just look to Jesus and have a moment of encounter with him today. The example that we're going to look at today comes out of John chapter 8. And in this passage, we encounter Jesus dealing with this crucial question when it comes to following him is, are we going to be rule followers or are we going to be Christ followers? Is it Jesus that you want to satisfy you or do you just want your life to match up to a certain moral code so that people think you are a good person? As we noted in week two of this series, Jewish people in that day liked to align themselves with a certain rabbi. That was the goal of a lot of young men was to actually be able to be like an apprentice of a rabbi, but the selection process was very stringent and you had to do a lot of memorization and you really had to prove yourself in order to be able to be a follower of one of these rabbis. It took a lot of schooling and discipline and even a special lifestyle to follow the teaching of that rabbi to become his follower, to be his fully committed follower. And one of the most well-known groups of rabbi followers at that time were the Pharisees. They weren't necessarily the largest in number, but you hear about them a lot because they were very much kind of in your face. They were sort of leading the way, and people always were hearing the opinion of the Pharisees. Then John chapter 7 bears that out, that, that this small group of people was very influential as a religious group. And for the most part, they really had it in for Jesus. They didn't like Jesus much at all because in their minds, Jesus was kind of like the counter rabbi. If they were the real, you know, the good rabbis, then Jesus was the exact opposite of what they felt like a good rabbi should be. And a couple of the reasons for that is number one, Jesus was calling for the common, uneducated, what the Pharisees would have referred to as kind of the rabble of society, the throwaways of society. These were the people that Jesus was targeting with his message. He was, he was saying, hey, each one of you can be my followers. Number two, he was teaching with authority. And because he was teaching with authority, uh, he, was, he was getting a large following. And so the, more, the following, more that following grew and the more Jesus continued to teach things that countered what the Pharisees were teaching, it just became very frustrating for them. And so more and more, they got angry with Jesus and wanted to find a way to take him down. And so you'll see through the gospels that the Pharisees tried a bunch of different things. Uh, The religious leaders of that day tried a bunch of different things in order to get at Jesus. And one of the ways that they tried to get at him here in John chapter eight is that they found a woman that was caught in adultery. And so they knew that the law stated, Jewish law stated that if there's a woman that's caught in adultery, then that's punishable by death. That's the response to that. And so they take this woman to Jesus and they say, all right, what do you say, Jesus? Let's take a look at the actual scripture passage here in John chapter eight and read it the way it's stated in here. Starting in verse one, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, then let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I can just picture her kind of looking around like, wait, everybody's left. She responds to him, no one, sir, she said. And then Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a pretty cool story. I mean, we see Jesus teaching in the courtyard this, this one morning. And as he's there teaching, this angry mob shows up, dragging this woman along with them. They push this adulterous woman in front of Jesus, and they bring him to this moment of conf- confrontation, where they say, we found this woman in bed with a man that was not her husband. So what are you going to do about it? The law says we stone her. So Jesus, what do we do? Jesus found himself in this dilemma because this woman had been caught doing something that was one of the three top sins according to Jewish law and tradition. This was a really big deal. There's basically idolatry, murder, and adultery. Those were the three big ones. And if you were caught doing one of those three, the punishment was death. In this case, it was capital punishment through the means of public stoning. So Jesus is in this tight spot. And the question is, what will this great rabbi that's been bringing along this contingent that has this following now, how will he respond in this moment? And his choice is to respond in, uh, and not to side with the rule followers, but to actually side with this adulterous woman. He instead shows grace to the adulterous woman. And the rule, follow, rule followers in the crowd that day, they were the ones that missed out on an opportunity to encounter Jesus. Now think just a moment about how crazy that is. Here's a woman that has been pursuing a sinful lifestyle, Okay. She's been in this sinful lifestyle, and now in this moment, when confronted with God himself, with Jesus, she experiences an encounter with God. And yet these rule followers, men that have dedicated their lives to pleasing God, wanting to follow the rules, they were the ones that completely missed the fact that God was right there in front of them the whole time. Completely missed it. So following the rules can keep us from following Jesus. We can get so focused on the rules that we don't follow Jesus. And I'm going to go through a couple of reasons why that might be. Number one, rules can be cumbersome. And that's the first blank in your outline today. Rules can be cumbersome. Sometimes following the rules can keep us from following Jesus. These rules were very cumbersome. They were a heavy weight. According to the Talmud, there were at least seven different types of Pharisees or rule followers as we're going to call them today. The word Pharisee actually meant separated one. So even the Jewish people themselves, by watching the public lifestyle of these Pharisees, they actually were able to group them into seven different categories, seven different types of Pharisees in the way that they chose to follow the rules. And now, since I'm a pastor of students, I'm always trying to come up with ways to relate things to today's culture and kind of make it understandable for students. So please just bear with me for a few moments These titles to each of these types of Pharisees are things that I came up with. You won't find them in the Talmud, (laughs) but it is in my language and it makes sense to me. So sorry if it doesn't make sense to you, but this is where we're at. Uh, The first one is this, a Facebook Pharisee, a Facebook Pharisee. And what I mean by that is, have you ever noticed that there are some times on Facebook where we kind of create a persona of ourselves on Facebook that everything is really awesome all the time, and we always have great relationships, and we just kind of, we create this persona that life is just fantastic. I know if you go on, on my Facebook account, you'll see a bunch of pictures of my kids, and they're always smiling and happy and hugging each other and loving each other. It's all this wonderful lovingness. And you would look at that and think, man... Matt and Larry, they must be fantastic parents cuz look, their kids are always happy. They never argue with each other, but that's just because we don't put the arguments on Facebook. <laughs> okay, they've hit each other multiple times this week. It happens. But when we put that stuff on Facebook, we just kind of put, well, let's put the let's put the image that we'd like people to see. And let's kind of keep close to, close to ourselves those things that we're not quite as proud of. And this is what that group of Pharisees was doing, is that they created a public persona of themselves that they always did the right thing and always followed every letter of the law, when in reality, the actual practice of their life was very different from the persona that they had created. So those were the Facebook Pharisees. That was one of the seven. The second is this. It's the, I'll do it then, Pharisee. I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase used. It was new to me when I came to Pennsylvania. I heard multiple people say this. Oh, I'll do it then. And I, in my ignorance, thought that when somebody said to me about some task, oh yeah, I'll do it then, I actually thought that that meant that that task would be done sometime soon. Apparently, I was just ignorant. Because when somebody says, I'll do it then, that just basically means I will do it sometime between now and the day that I die. Most likely very far in the future and at a time that is not convenient for you. I'll do it then. I'll take care of it at some point. And there were Pharisees that did the same thing. They talked a really good game. You know, they talked a lot about, well, in the future, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to serve God this way. And wait till you see what I have planned next. I am really going to blow your socks off with this thing. But in reality, they never actually accomplished anything. They just knew how to talk a really good game. So that's the I'll do it then Pharisee. There's another one called a black and blue Pharisee. The black and blue Pharisee, they so strictly followed the tradition of not communicating with a woman in public that literally when they were walking in public and a woman passed by, they would close their eyes and put their head down and just keep walking. And so sometimes they would walk like right into walls or stub their toes. They're these black and blue Pharisees. You always knew them because they had bruises all over their face. They're closing their eyes and trying to steer clear of the women. So they bounce their heads off of those stone walls. Now, there's also knuckle-dragging Pharisees. And what the knuckle-dragging Pharisees were is that they would just kind of slump their shoulders like this all the time in order to show their great humility. And then when they would walk, they would not raise their soles of their feet off the ground. They would just drag them like this. And it was this outward symbol of like, look how, look how humble I am. I'm am really, I'm good at this humble thing. You guys need to see my humility. Number five is a spreadsheet Pharisee. How many of you guys, be honest, you love spreadsheets? There's always a few. I see you guys in the back. Yeah, I love spreadsheets. My brother is such a huge fan of spreadsheets. My brother has a spreadsheet for making pancakes. Like he can enter in whatever quantity he wants, and then it automatically tells him, you need this amount of flour and this amount of sugar. And this. He like loves spreadsheets. He has a spreadsheet for everything. Uh, I would imagine if these Pharisees were, uh, uh, you know, if, if they had the access to it, they would have loved a program like Microsoft Excel because they could do a good job of tabulating things. But what they would do is they were always keeping this profit and loss account in their uh, service of God. So they would say, okay, I did this thing good, I did this thing good, I did this thing good, and here's the way that God has blessed me. And so when that thing would get out of balance, where they they would have done a lot more things than what they felt like God had blessed them for, then they would hold that against God, and they'd be like, well, look, God, I mean, I've been doing a lot of things for you, and the blessing side is kind of weak right now, so you really need to step it up. That was kind of the perspective of those Pharisees, as they kept real good track of the good deeds that they were doing. Then another, a sixth kind was an eggshells Pharisee. Uh, in the monologue this morning, I thought she did a good job of talking about, I'm kind of walking on eggshells around my homeowner's association. It was the same, it was the same way with this group of Pharisees, is that they just saw God as punisher. They saw that God every once in a while would show up and just punish people for the wrong stuff that they were doing. So they literally walked on eggshells all the time, just so scared to make any mistakes. They kept a really clean slate. And so they probably did a real good job of keeping a clean slate, but they didn't do it out of, response, out of a response that was love of God. It was all just based on the fact that, well, God is this great punisher. And if I don't follow according to the laws, then I'm going to be in big trouble. So that's the eggshells Pharisee. And then the last one is this, number seven, is the God-fearing Pharisee. He truly loved God, and he delighted in following the law, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Now, when I look at that list, and I see that six out of that seven did not sound like a fun way to live at all. I think we can make the assumption here that the rules can be cumbersome. You know, when you live that way, when you focus on the rules, it becomes this heavy burden. It's not something like the God-fearing Pharisee experience that you truly love God and are delighted in following the law. No, you follow the rules because you feel like, oh, I just have to do it. It's this heavy burden. I have to follow through on all of these rules. So I understand when Jesus spoke of the yoke of the Pharisees, he was often talking about this cumbersome, like really debilitating way to live. And it was this group of people that had this experience that were waiting for Jesus to basically just shrug his shoulders at this adulterous woman and say, well, you know, those are the rules. Those are the rules. So she's got to be punished. But Jesus instead, he leveled the playing field. And I wanna, we were going to talk a little bit about how it is that he did this. He leveled the playing field. Uh, in order to do that, let's take a look at this depiction uh, from the passion of the Christ of this very scene. So here in John eight six through eight, we see here where Jesus stooped down and then again, after he had spoken, stooped down and started to write on the ground. And I'm just intrigued by that because you see him writing it, but really in the scripture it doesn't it doesn't state outright what it is that he was writing. It's kind of like, oh, I wonder what he was actually writing on the ground. Did that in any way have influence? over the response of the religious leaders that day. And we can only guess because the text doesn't tell us outright, but I think that the wording here does actually give us some hints. If you go back and look at the original wording of this, uh, the common word for writing that's used repeatedly is graphine. But the word that's used here in this passage is actually a more detailed word, which is catagraphine, which in most circumstances really means to write down a record against someone. So it's not just writing for the sake of writing, but it's writing down a record against someone. So perhaps Jesus wasn't just scribbling in the sand, but maybe he was actually writing out a record against those religious leaders that day. In a sense, these religious leaders had taken this adulterous woman and said, okay, what you've done in private, we're now going to make public. And so they drag her out in public to make a spectacle of this and test Jesus in this place. And so maybe Jesus in that moment said, okay, You want to air her dirty laundry? I will now hold you accountable to the things that you've done as well and begin to write down a record of the things that they had done. And since they uh, they were saying that they wanted to make sure that everybody lived up to the rules, and Jesus in response was saying, okay, if you want everybody to live up to the rules, then you're going to have to live up to it as well. I'm going to hold you accountable too. See, what the religious leaders didn't realize when they came that day, maybe some of them did, but I would guess that most of them, when they came that day, they didn't realize the heavy weight that they were carrying on their shoulders, that cumbersome burden of their own attempts to earn the favor of God. They didn't know that that day they could have had the same experience as that adulterous woman and have that weight lifted off of them, that they could have found grace in that moment, that they could have had an encounter with God. Some of those pharisees were spreadsheet pharisees. You know, some of them were knuckle-dragging, some of them were Facebook pharisees, but every one of them was so focused on the rules that that had become the burden. Their attempts to honor God had become cumbersome, a heavy, unyielding weight. They were so busy following this litany of rules that they missed out on an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus himself. Now, in preparation for this message, One of the things I was doing was looking around at rules and kind of their significance. And I found this one uh, website that had a whole list of weird state laws, just weird things that states they still have these laws on the books. At one time in their history, they made the law because it somehow was important to them. But now, looking at it, probably 100 years later or whatever, these laws just make absolutely no sense. Like, why would they have a law like this? And so I thought, let's just talk about that a little bit today. I wanted to give you guys five of them that I pulled off of the list that I thought were just kind of ridiculous. In Texas, it is against the law for anyone to have a pair of pliers in his or her possession. No pliers in the state of Texas. Uh, in Miami, this is probably be a hard one, especially for you guys that have younger kids out there. In Miami, you are not allowed to imitate an animal at any time. It's completely against the law. In Memphis, Tennessee, now you guys are going to think that I made this up, but I promise you, I got this off of this weird laws website. It says that in Memphis, Tennessee, a woman is not to drive a car unless a man agrees to walk along in front of the car and warn everybody that a woman is driving a car behind him. So she has to go slowly behind him while he clears the way. It's okay. There's a woman driving a car behind me. Be aware. And then, of course, she drives right over top of him. In New Jersey, this, is, uh, this just seems awful to me. Cabbage cannot be sold on Sunday. Can you believe this? No cabbage sales on Sunday. In Utah, this seems like it'd be really hard to follow through on. In Utah, birds have the right of way on any public highway. (laughs) Is that ridiculous? I mean, I hit a bird once when I was driving. I can't imagine being taken to court by that bird's family. It just doesn't really make sense to me. But at some point, somebody somewhere thought that these rules were good. There was a good intention behind these rules at some point. And if these laws were still enforced today, they would be really hard to follow, right? It'd be ridiculous. Can you imagine needing a pair of pliers for something, but not using them because you were scared you'd be taken to jail for it? Like my daughter on uh, two days ago, when it was her birthday, her uh, her grandfather, my father-in-law got her a bike. And so I'm going to be putting that bike together. And at some point I'm going to need pliers. And I just feel like it would be awful to try to put together a bike and not have the pliers there. You know, so that would be a really hard one to follow. Or worse, can you imagine having a hankering for cabbage on a Sunday and not be able to get it? That'd be awful, right? You should show up at the grocery store and they've got all the cabbage under lock and key. It'd be terrible. The worst one, though, would have to be the next time you had the urge to imitate some sort of an animal not being able to do that, really. I mean, that would be awful. Who doesn't want to make an elephant noise from time to time, right? Or do the monkey thing? That's always fun. So the rules are ridiculous, right? But this is what had happened... With the Pharisees, they had stopped simply following God's law, as it was stated, and they had written their own laws that went above and beyond, and they nitpicked on every area of life so that the person that tried to follow all of, those, all of those laws, it was this impossible battle. It was this huge list of rules. It was called hedge building. And the idea was, if you make all of these rules that kind of surround God's law, then if you don't break all of these rules, then you won't break God's law either. At least that's what they thought. And this is what happens to us when our focus is on the rules and not on Jesus. We get focused on the things we have to do, the things that are required of us, and we don't stay focused on Jesus. But not only can the rules be cumbersome, but the rules also, number two, they don't inspire grace. Rules don't inspire grace. John 8, 3-5 says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in this woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? So again, Jesus is in this tough spot, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they knew it. They had him cornered. What judgment could he hand down that wouldn't put him in the doghouse with somebody? And so in response to this, he had a few options. Number one, he could have said, You're right, the rules are the rules. You guys go ahead and administer justice the way you think it should be. But if he said that, he would lose the crowds that followed him because they were following him because he had a different way to live, a different way to approach it. They were following him, uh, but they wouldn't if he just aligned himself with the rule makers, the rule followers, the rule keepers. Or number two, if he agreed with the ruling and actually participated it, participated in it himself, then that would create a problem because the Roman government at that time said that no Jewish person could carry out capital punishment unless they had the not only the permission, but that the Romans had to be there supervising it. So it actually would have been a political issue too, if we would have followed through with that punishment himself. And so even though the rules and the rule keepers did what they do best, when they got Jesus like kind of cornered there in that spot, they thought, oh, we've got him in a place where he just can't get out of it. Jesus then shows grace. He flips it. He shows grace. And in that moment where the religious rulers were saying, we need to rule this with an iron fist. This is this has to be punished. This has to be taken care of. Jesus shows grace to this sinful woman, to this adulterous woman. And I have to say, I, I prefer grace. I'm so thankful for grace. The idea that Jesus, who is 100% God, chose to leave heaven and come to this earth and live as 100% man. He chose to leave. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. And he became obedient to death so that my sin could be forgiven, so that your sin could be forgiven. There is no grace that is more amazing than that. And after giving himself up on the cross three days later to rise from the dead and live in new life, that is grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one could boast. And the, re- the religious leaders, they were boasting in their rule following. And Jesus says, boasting in the rule following does nothing. What you need is grace. And the adulterous woman experienced it that day, and yet the rule followers missed out. Romans 3.22 says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And this is a verse that you may be familiar with. 3.23 says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But here's the good news for us, that God, with undeserved kindness, he declares that we are righteous, not because we followed all the rules, but because we accepted that gift of grace. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. So we're, we're learning that following the rules can keep us from following Jesus, and not just because the rules are cumbersome, and not just because the rules don't inspire grace, but also they can keep us from following Jesus because rules don't keep us around. Rules don't keep us around. Starting in verse 9, those who heard began to go away. Excuse me, one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left and the woman was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So in the end, who is left standing there? Only Jesus and this adulterous woman. Only the sinner and the one that can save her with his grace. The rest of them headed for hills. They didn't headed for the hills. They didn't stay around for the words that would bring forgiveness and compassion that would set this woman on a new pathway of life. This passage is a great explanation of what the idea of repentance is all about. Christ calls us to repentance, and what that means is that at one time in our life we were headed a different direction. We were following our sinful nature. We were following that path for our life. And then Jesus gets a hold of us in that moment and says, I need you to repent. I want you to turn around and go the other direction. Make a 180 and admit in that moment that God's way is best and my way is not the best way. Jesus says, go free. Don't go back to the life of slavery that you were living in, but go and live your life free from sin, free from the burden of sin. So Jesus beckons her to embark on this life-changing journey, not as a rule follower, but as a follower of Christ. You know, when the pathway on this life-changing journey gets tough, what is it that's going to keep you around? Is it the rules? In that moment that you're hurting, is it the rules that are going to keep you around? No. It's a relationship with Jesus that's going to keep you around. It's his presence throughout our lives. That's what's going to keep us around. Now, as a pastor of students, I'm often asking the question of what is it that we're passing along to our next generation? What is it that we're passing along to our middle school students and our high school students? What are they learning from us? Are they learning a persistent pursuit of rules? Or are they learning about a passionate pursuit of Christ himself? Is that what we're modeling to him? I hope that it is. There's a great quote out of the Not A Fan book that says this, when our kids grow up and define Christianity as keeping a moral code instead of defining Christianity as being a follower of Jesus Christ, then they will walk away from both. They'll walk away from both if that's the way we define it. So we can no longer define Christianity according to the rules, but we define it according to a pursuit, an all-out following of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to hear a story from a young man named Kai Frainer. He's actually a foreign exchange student that has lived uh, with one of our daybreak families over the course of the past school year. And it's just been really incredible to see the transformation that God has done in his life, where his understanding of church or of religion or of a relationship with Jesus, it was not at all about relationship. It was all just about, I follow the rules, and if I follow the rules, then people will think I'm a good person. And that's really what it was. But we've seen such an amazing transformation in his life over the course of this year, and, and just seen him really understand or come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's no longer about the rules for Kai. So in just a moment, we're gonna actually watch his story on the TV screens. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of conclude my message here today by reading to you a hymn by a guy named uh, A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson was like the founding father of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is our denomination. And he wrote this hymn that I think is really a great illustration of what it means to move from a, a focus on rules, a focus on accomplishing tasks, to moving to a relationship with Christ, uh, to moving to a focus on Him. And so I'll read this, and then as soon as we're done, we're gonna watch this video together. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His Word. Once His gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. Once twas painful trying, now 'tis perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once t'was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once t'was constant drifting, now my anchor's cast. Once t'was busy planning, now tis trustful prayer. Once t'was anxious caring, now he has the care. Once t'was what I wanted, now what Jesus says. Once t'was constant asking, now tis ceaseless praise. Once it was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I tried to use him, but now he uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, and now for him alone. Once I hoped in Jesus, now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dying, now they brightly shine. Once for death I waited, now his coming hail. And my hopes are anchored, safe within the veil. All in all forever, Jesus, will I sing. Everything in Jesus, and Jesus, everything.
1: Hi, my name is Kai. I'm a foreign exchange student from Switzerland. When I arrived last fall, I moved in with a family from Daybreak, the Hughes family. Over the past year, in staying with the Hughes, being a part of Daybreak Student Ministries, and through some important friendships, God has completely changed my life. In church, in Switzerland, it was all about rules. The only goal for me in going to church was to get confirmed. If I could follow all the rules and get confirmed, then it meant I was a good person. If I was a good person, then I would get a party. If I could get a party, then I would get lots of presents. So, I followed all the rules in order to get lots of presents. I was following all the rules the church gave me, but I still felt empty inside. During that desperate time, I had a random encounter with an old friend of mine. She was thinking about going on a foreign exchange trip. I totally encouraged her to do that, because I thought it would be a very good experience for her. But something unexpected happened. I started to think that maybe I should go on a foreign exchange trip, too. I never had a doubt about going away. I knew it was good for me to do it. At that time, I thought it was just by chance that I had that conversation with my friend. But now I realize that it was God that planned that encounter, and He had it planned for me to come here all along. My first connection with Daybreak was at Elements Waterboards even event last summer. I came to the event with my brother Isaac. I was immediately included into the games. Smash it. (laughs) It was crazy. I had an awesome time. That day introduced me to the idea of having fun at church. Again, church for me in the past had been all about rules, and this was was nothing like that. I had found a place where I could have fun and be me. I could be myself around my youth group I did not have to pretend to be somebody else. I grew closer to my friends at youth group. God even provided a close friend at school named Corinne. She taught me that no matter what you have done, God will always forgive you. In November of last year, the went on our fall retreat. At the retreat, I began to realize that I was carrying a very big load of sin with me at all times. I knew that this was something that God wanted to take care of for me. So one Sunday night, shortly after the retreat, we were taking a, talking about decisions. That message spoke very clearly to me. I learned that there was somebody who, would, who could forgive me and thus set me free from my sin. That's when I knew that I wanted to become a Christian. I prayed very hard that night. I asked Jesus to forgive me, make me a new person, and I dedicated my life to honor Him. God really brought it all together for me two weeks ago at the Spring Retreat. It was on Saturday night and the service was about Jesus, that He is our healer and He can heal us of anything we struggle with, whether it's emotional or physical. At the end, the pastor told everybody who had a need for healing to stand up and for other people to pray for them. It was amazing to see students all over the room stand up to be prayed for. The leaders, volunteers, and even other students moved around the room to pray for the students that had stood up. It was amazing. It was as if I could literally feel the Holy Spirit's presence in the room. No rules, no confirmation checklist, just God doing His thing in everyone that was there. At one point, I was in the back of the room. I looked over all the people praying for each other, and I thought to myself, God is absolutely real, and he loves me. This is what a relationship with Jesus is all about.
0: All right, let's pray together. God, I love you. And I thank you so much for the gift of your son that you chose to show grace to us and invite us back into a relationship with you. Jesus, I thank you for the sacrifice that you made coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying that sacrificial death so that we could experience new life in you. Thank you, God. We love you. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, today, Lord, our hearts are moved just by the idea that you want us to experience you in a personal way. And so, Lord, we choose to follow after you, not the rules, not the regulations. We're not going to put those first. We're going to follow after you. And we know that when we do, when we follow after you, then it's our devotion to you that's going to lead us to a place where we make decisions that honor you in a real way.